I've got a pretty serious message tonight. So, I, I, of course, I like to start, when I talk, I like to start with a joke anyway. But tonight, I especially want to start with one because I've got a pretty serious message. But it's a message that if you will receive it, if you'll really meditate on it and receive it, it will absolutely change your life, not only as a Christian, but in everything you do. So, and I don't take credit for the message, it's, it's directly from the Holy Spirit and the Word, and so I, I really encourage you to prepare your hearts and minds to receive it. Well, I, as you've heard me say before, I'm not a good joke teller, but my wife reminded me today that I'm not a good joke teller, but I'm a good joke finder. So I, I found this joke, and, and, you know, well, I won't explain it. I'll just read it, okay? You'll understand. The title of this joke is No Excuse Sunday. And it says, to make it possible for everyone to attend church this Sunday, we're going to have a special No Excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say Sunday is my only day to sleep in. There will be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that our chairs are too uncomfortable. Eye drops will be provided for those with tired eyes from watching TV late Saturday night. We'll have steel helmets for those who say the roof will cave in if I ever came to church. Y'all have heard that before, right? Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold and fans for those who think it's too hot. You can never satisfy everybody, you know. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites that are present. You like that one, huh? Relatives and friends will be in attendance for those who can't go to church and cook dinner, too. We'll distribute stamp-out stewardship buttons for those that feel the church is always asking for money. One section of the sanctuary will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to see God in nature. Doctors and nurses will be in attendance for those who plan to be sick on Sunday. The sanctuary will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen them, seen the church without a minute. And we'll provide hearing aids for those who can't hear the preacher and earplugs who say the music is too loud. I thought all that was real apropos. I don't know about y'all, but it was real apropos for me. Well, the title of my message is Grace. It really is amazing. And if you'll turn with me to Ephesians 2.8, that'll be our foundation scripture for tonight. And I'm going to read it to you in the Amplified. I have to use my phone because that's the only Amplified Bible I have. So, And it says, For it is by free grace, God's unmerited favor, that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves, of your own doing. It came not through your own striving, but it is the gift of God. And it really is the gift of God. And, you know, there are 128 references to grace in the New Testament. There are only 32 in the Old Testament. 
And almost all the epistles start with a call for grace. Grace is an overused and under-understood word. And when we really get, begin to get our mind around it, it truly is amazing in the grandest sense of the word. And I'm going to warn you all up front that um, the Holy Spirit gave me this word, and I believe He gave it to me word for word. And so, usually when I speak, I, I just have an outline, and I speak from an outline, and I just sometimes go off on tangents, and sometimes I forget some of the stuff. So, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that I'm not to forget a single word of this. So I'm going to read it. So I hope you'll bear with me. I'm not the greatest extemporaneous speaker anyway. But uh, I believe you'll be blessed by it if you have your hearts ready to receive. When I began to study this grace and started to comprehend the enormity of it, I decided to look up every definition of it that I could find. And here are just some. From the Strong's, it's defined as benefit, gift, joy, liberality, pleasure, and unmerited favor. From the Nelson Bible Dictionary, it's defined as favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or the merit of the one who receives it, and in spite of what that same person deserves. From the American Heritage Dictionary, it's defined as mercy, clemency, favor rendered by one who need not do so, Immunity or reprieve, divine love or protection, the state of being protected or sanctified by God, and excellence or power granted by God. And that's just a few of the definitions that I found up, found. And I searched for many more sources for the definition of grace, but these will, I think, help us begin to understand that even with all the descriptive power of all these words, I, at least, am not able to really grasp the amazing power of this single word. I guess I started the description process with the old acronym for grace that goes, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's all right as far as it goes, but it's far too simplistic for us to understand what the grace of God is really all about. There's an important point here though, that we will explore a little, and that is that while grace is free to us, and there's no way to earn it or buy it, it's definitely not free. John 3.16 really says it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What an awful price to pay. I can't even imagine consciously giving one of my two sons, knowing that he would have to go through the humiliation, the shame, the pain and the agony that Jesus went through. But God knew full well what Jesus would have to suffer. And God paid that price, not just because He loved Jesus, but because He loves you and me. God paid an awful price, but Jesus paid an awful price as well. You remember when Jesus was in the garden seeking His Father that this cup might pass from Him, and He sweat great drops of blood because He was in agony over what He was about to suffer. Jesus knew at that time exactly what he would go through. He knew. He chose to pay that price not only because of his love for us, but because of his love for his Father and his willingness to be obedient to his Father's will. 
I also searched to find out what Jesus had to say about grace, but there was not a single reference where Jesus used the word. But if you will, let's look for a minute at John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that Jesus came to us full of grace, and that grace and truth came through Jesus. Or we can say it this way, Jesus is grace and truth. So that all grace that we receive comes to, comes to us through Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus didn't, walk about, didn't talk about grace, it's just that he didn't use the word grace. He talked about it in parables. Look at Luke chapter 15. Beginning in verse 11. And it says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. Some versions say, that he lived without restraint. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. That's grace. This, of course, is the story of the prodigal son, and we've all heard it dozens, if not hundreds of times. We can see that this son really no longer had any right to expect anything from his father. He had already received everything he was entitled to, and he had used it all up in a way that made him even less deserving of any consideration from his father. But his father received him back into his bosom in a wonderful display of love and grace. 
I think we have the tendency, because we've heard this story so many times, and because it's set in a time frame and culture that's not familiar to us, that we don't really comprehend the magnitude of the grace that's demonstrated here. I'd like to read you a similar story with a more modern, more modern setting. And this comes from a book by Philip Yancey. A young girl grows up in a cherry, on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned and tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room. After an argument, and that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before in her life. She was right all along, she decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men will pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about her folks back home. But their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair. And with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. And sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, and her cough worsens. One night, she lies awake listening for footsteps, and all of a sudden, her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whisper. Her pockets are empty and she is hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs up tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she has piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory. And a single image fills her mind of May and Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom all at once, and with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. 
Oh God, why did I leave? She says to herself and pain stabs at her heart. My dog eats better back home than I do. And now she's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are at home, they're probably, they've probably written her off as dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says these words over and over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement worn smooth by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here, and every so often a billboard, a sign, posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all the time we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousands of scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stand a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great aunts and uncles and cousins, and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child, we've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that story... That made the prodigal son story come alive to me in a way that it never had come alive to me before because I can understand where that little girl's coming from. Many, many years ago in my youth, I ran away from home and experienced the exact similar situation that she went through. I mean, I wasn't a prostitute, but, you know, I was drinking and all that, and I was in a bad way, and I was really glad to come home. Well, here is a father demonstrating on a small scale 
the grace that we receive from our loving Father. A demonstration of forgiveness and acceptance that can only be understood in one way. She's his child. And there's nothing, nothing she can do that would make her father love her less. This father has been waiting, aching for the opportunity to receive his child back to himself. And shower her with all the love and benefits that flow from being connected to the family. Does she deserve such love and forgiveness? Some would say no. But it really has nothing to do with what she deserves. She is his child. We're all in a similar position when it comes to receiving the grace of God. Just as the love and forgiveness for this girl flowed from her birthright and her relationship with her loving father. So the grace of God flows to us as a result of our birthright and relationship from having accepted Jesus as our Savior. The Word says in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Think about that. Joint heirs with Jesus. We're entitled to everything that Jesus is entitled to because of that relationship. Since we're joint heirs with Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares that we are the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. That means we have right standing with God. We are justified by our relationship with Jesus. It's because of this relationship that God has accepted us into his family and made the abundance of his grace available to us. However, just like the girl in our story, or the prodigal son that Jesus talked about, we must be willing to put ourselves into a position to receive that grace. In the story of the young girl, the grace and forgiveness of her father was there all along. But she had separated herself from her father and chosen to go her own way. She had to make a choice to return to her father and seek a return to fellowship with him. The prodigal son did not deserve that forgiveness. He had chosen the sin life that had almost consumed him. And because of those choices, he returned with the thought that he would not return to a position of sonship, but that he would return to a position of a servant. But let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans was in here the other day. Romans 5 verse 20. It says, Moreover the law entered that, uh, that offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace might abound through righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we just said. The word says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Does that mean we have a license to sin? If this grace and forgiveness were there all along, why not just sin all we want to? And then repent and we'll be forgiven and be free to sin again. Look at Romans 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How should we who died to sin any longer live in it? While it's true that we'll be forgiven, sin causes a break in our relationship with God. When that happens, we open the door for Satan to have access to our lives. With all the consequences that come with that. Then, unless like the prodigal, we return and repent. There is a downward spiral that will take us where we don't want to go. Satan will try to use the choices we have made to convince us that we are so bad that God could never forgive us. Anybody ever heard that from Satan? I have. It is the biggest lie that he tells. If we have received Jesus as our Savior, we have right standing with God and we are righteous before him. We are righteous before we sinned, we are righteous during sin, and we are righteous after sin. Not because of what we have or have not done, but because and solely because of our relationship with Jesus, our big brother. We have that position because we became part of the family of God along with our big brother Jesus. And look at Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 38. And it says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing would be able to separate us from the love of God. No matter what we have done, God our Father is waiting for us to return so that He can celebrate and return us to fellowship and relationship with Him and in His family. There's always a banquet waiting. Now I want to close with just this little bit here. These principles of grace, forgiveness, righteousness, and justification are available to everyone. Whether we're saved or unsaved alike. But there's a different process involved to receive them. For those of us who have accepted Jesus as Savior, it is as simple as a decision to repent. 1 John 1.9 says that if we repent, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This process reestablishes our relationship with God and Jesus. For those who have not made the choice to just trust Jesus as their Savior, it's still a simple process. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For us all, saved and unsaved, the Father is patiently waiting to receive us into fellowship with Himself. God's grace is amazing. It's amazing that He would love us so much that in spite of all that we've said, all that we've done, all the times that we've rejected Him, and we all have, 
all we have to do if we've been saved is just to repent and seek Him and all is forgiven. And the banquet starts all over again. And if we haven't been saved, it's as simple as that little confession in Romans 10, 9 and 10. And I don't know the, the spiritual condition of everyone that's here. But if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you that as we dismiss this service, my wife and I will be up here. And if you would like to know Jesus as your Savior, we would be honored and delighted to receive you and to lead you to a relationship with Jesus Christ and for you to be able to receive this amazing grace that's always there. That's all I've got. But I want you to know that if you would do a little study on grace, you know, seriously, this, what I had to say tonight, only scratches the surface of how amazing grace is. Grace is all-encompassing. And I don't think that if we studied it for the rest of our lives, that we would ever plumb the depths of that one word and what it means in the relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for, for your Holy Spirit who conceived it. We th and I thank you, Lord, that you chose me as your vessel to deliver it. I pray, Father God, that I spoke your words in a manner that were respectful and meaningful. And I pray, Father God, that your spirit went before, it, before that word into this group of people to prepare their hearts and minds to receive it and all it contains. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great night.